This is the Disability Visibility Podcast with your host, Alice Wong. Hello, my dear friends. Welcome to the Disability Visibility Podcast. Conversations on disability politics, culture, and media. I'm your host, Alice Wong. 2020 is about to end. Dear good riddance. Now that a vaccine is about to become available to the public, what does that mean for the communities hardest hit by the pandemic? Today's episode features an interview with Johnny J, who is from the Oto Bazura and Choctaw tribes of Oklahoma. Johnny is a journalist organizer, creator, futurist, and the founder of a tribe called Geek, an award-winning media platform for indigenous geek culture and STEM, and hashtag Indigenous for Hope, a suicide prevention initiative designed to educate, encourage, and empower Native youth. Johnny will talk about experiences accessing healthcare and stay safe as an immunocompromised person. The pandemic's impact on disabled indigenous people, the systemic inequalities facing indigenous communities, and the movement to remove racist imagery and terms in popular culture. Please note there will be discussions about hospitalization, death, genocide, settler colonialism, medical racism, and racist mascots. Are you ready? Don't wait, Joe! Johnny, thank you so much for being my podcast today. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. Please tell the audience uh, a little bit about yourself or your background or just anything you'd like to share. Uh, well, my name is Johnny Jay, and I'm from the Oto, Missouri, and Choctaw Tribes of Oklahoma. I'm the founder of a tribe called Geek, a media platform for indigenous geek culture and STEM. I'm also one of the co-founding board members for Not Your Mascot and Live Indigenous Okay!, and, you know, I've just been doing a lot of advocacy work. I do a lot of speaking. Um, I also do a lot of artwork, um, a lot of digital artwork mainly. And that's kind of been keeping me sane during this pandemic as well. And let's see, I guess, what else can I say about myself? Um, I was born and raised in Oklahoma. I lived in New Mexico and for a while, moved back to Oklahoma and somehow between those two states, I ended up out here in Los Angeles um, in Hollyweird, and I actually really can't imagine how I was ever anywhere else. I just seem to fit in really well here with the weirdos. Um, but yeah, that's a little about me. So we are talking on the last day of September 2020, which is hard to believe because, you know, this pandemic has changed. My perception of time, sometimes it goes 
really slow, but I feel like this, this September has been really fast for me. Uh, how are you doing right now? Oh, that's a loaded question. Because <laughs> it has, like, time has been passing so fast. And I don't know if it's because, you know, like, we have this pandemic going on. And I've been in my apartment since before you know, they were doing the shutdown because I have like, I'm immunocompromised because I have lupus. And so I wasn't going out much anyway. Um, right. I started off this year sick. Um, in January I was really sick and it took a couple of weeks to kind of recover. I had um, a really bad case of bronchitis, which, you know, in the back of my mind, like I know it wasn't COVID, but you know, with some of the symptoms that I had and everything, <laughs> you know, you kind of panic and you're like, thinking back, like, did I have COVID already? Um, But, you know, like I was already kind of um, in a lockdown situation, not as strict as I am now, but still kind of not going out as much um, and just kind of being mindful of where I was at because, you know, I was scared of getting sick again. But then COVID happened and boy, did it change the world so quickly. Um, Because I remember, you know, just hearing about it about them talking about potential lockdowns. And I live here in Los Angeles and, you know, it almost seemed like a panic at the beginning. Um, And I remember like telling my partner that he needed to go grocery shopping because, you know, I said, everybody's starting to loot everything and just kind of hoard. And he's like, no, no, it's not that bad. And I was like, it's that bad. I said, I'm watching it on the news. Like people are running out of toilet paper and paper towels. And he was like, no, no, it's not that bad. It's, it's, you know, people are just being dramatic. And um, I guess on his lunch break, he went to the grocery store and sure enough, you know, everything was being wiped out and he was like, whoa. <laughs> and just from there, you know, it just kind of went down really quickly where, you know, we were just being expected to stay home and, um, you know, with my health, that became an issue. My partner ended up quitting his job because, you know, there was just a risk of me being infected and not being able to protect himself at work either. So, you know, it's been kind of like an adjustment period. So it's, and we've been stuck together. It's just the two of us and we kind of go crazy a little bit. Um, and just trying to, you know, trying to find out, you know, how we're going to survive in this new reality because it's just like, you know, we can't go to work the way we used to. Um, the things that we were able to do before, you know, we just can't do that with my health, you know, it's just so volatile that, you know, it's kind of hard to find a way forward when we still have this pandemic and it doesn't seem to be getting any better anywhere. Um, We have no leadership. So it just keeps, it just seems to get worse. So (laughs) I think I'm doing as well as could be expected in this situation uh, because, you know, it's scary when you have are chronically ill, when you're disabled and you have a pandemic that is so contagious um, because, you know, even my doctors have been really stressing, like, you need to be careful. You need to make sure you wear your mask. You need to make sure that, you know, not you're not exposing yourself um, because, like, my chances of survival are very low. I, you know, one of my doctors told me that my I have less than 15 percent of surviving COVID if I were to um, be infected just because of the way that my lupus um, t- attacks my lungs. And, you know, there's just so many little nuances that happen with the way that lupus affects my body, that COVID would just devastate my body. Um, so, you know, that's kind of terrifying too, but so I think I'm doing okay. I mean, (laughs) 
I'm still here, so that's good. <laughs> you know, just to uh, continue the conversation about the pandemic, I think I'm super curious as somebody to ask Lupus, what were your thoughts about, you know, during the early or like middle part of the pandemic where, you know, there was a run on medications that are typically used for people with lupus as an unproven treatment for the coronavirus because uh, this again, I think, left a lot of people out in terms of just out of panic and fear for people who actually did those medications. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that's one of the things that has boggled the, my mind the most because, one, you know, a lot of the medications that, you know, were hoarded at the beginning, like um, Plaquenil, for example, you know, you only can get those medications if you're prescribed those medications. Like, you can't just go to a pharmacy and be like, give me a three-month supply of this, you know? So I was really surprised that so many people were getting prescriptions for it when they don't need it, um, especially given how toxic it can be. Um, because I know, like, when, you know, as someone with lupus, like, I've been on Plaquenil, I've been on Benlista and a lot of different medications, and when you start on those medications, they watch you for a good week to a month to see how your body is going to handle those. And so like, I was really surprised that people were just like, Oh, we're, we're just going to take this and we're good. And I'm just like, Whoa, <laughs> you know, like how, but you know, one of the things that I did learn is that it wasn't that they were actually being prescribed to a lot of people. I'm sure there were people that were getting those prescriptions, but at the same time, a lot of research facilities were procuring these medications for them to start testing how effective they would be on COVID-19. So Plaquenil, um, and surprisingly enough, there were a lot of diabetic meds that have been used um, as well. And that were still, I have to um, call in my prescription for Aliglyptin, which I use for my diabetes, because it's another medication family that is being used to see how well, it can help in the treatment of COVID-19. So saxagliptin, aliglyptin, and there's one more that I can't remember right now off the top of my head, but all three of them um, that are really popular diabetic medications have been really hard to come by. Um, pharmacies, um, the one that I went to here in Hollywood at the Rouse, you know, I went to go pick up my prescriptions for saxagliptin at the time. And they were like, well, you need to when you get need your prescription, you need to call it in because we are only able to give out one prescription. So they were only getting one prescription a month. So if you weren't the first person who needed that medication to get in there at the time, then you weren't getting that medication and they would have to special order it for you. And even then it was kind of iffy. So I started, I had to switch over my pharmacy because I found that it was easier to get it through CVS than it was to continue getting it through them. And even then, you know, they have to call it in every month to make sure that in special orders so that it's there when I need my refill. And, you know, I also had to change from saxagliptin because it became a medication that was no longer covered by insurance because of, you know, how popular it was becoming at the time. So I ended up having to be 
change my prescription and be prescribed allogliptin, which honestly, it doesn't seem to work as well for me as the saxagliptin, but I can't afford the saxagliptin without the insurance. So, you know, it's, it's really left a lot of people out, like just wondering like, okay, what are we going to do? Like there's so many people that are having to switch medications to generic brands or to, you know, trying something different just because they can't, they don't have access to the prescriptions that they need because of COVID-19 and people thinking, oh, well, maybe this will work. Maybe that'll work. And that's fine to do the research. Like we need that research to figure out how to combat this virus. But at the same time, like they really need to be mindful of the people that, need it, you know, who's that, that this medication it's proven to work for these different conditions. And we need to make sure that the people with those conditions have access to them. So I think that's one of the things that's really been, um, not really discussed when it comes to talking about COVID-19 because we've, you know, we've all heard them talking about Plaquenil, but we haven't heard them talking about other medications that have been harder to come by as well. There's so much uncertainty, and I think that's, you know, for a lot of us, you know, that's always been kind of one of the underlying things, but I think it's been really amplified at this time, you know, I think it's definitely true. Oh, especially now, because, you know, it's almost like, too, and I worry, like, okay, what if I do have COVID? Am I going to get the care that I need? Or are they going to be like, well, she has lupus, so you know, let's not waste the resources on her and let's give it to somebody who might stand a better chance of survival. And I worry about that quite a bit because, you know, one, you know, I'm a native woman. And so I also have to combat medical racism when I go into the hospital. And it's something that I'm always, that's always on the forefront of my mind when I go in, because I'm worried about, you know, am I going to get the care that I need? Um, Am I going to have to fight for my care? Uh, because of the misconceptions that they have of Native people. Are they thinking that I'm just an alcoholic or drug addict? You know, what are the excuses that they're going to try and give to not give me care or to withhold care from me? Um, Because they think, you know, oh, well, maybe she's just an alcoholic or, you know, just all these judgments that they have about Native people. Like that's always on the forefront of my mind. And now with COVID, it's it's just a whole other layer because it's like, now am I going to be discriminated against because of my disability? because I'm chronically ill. And it's, you know, it's terrifying when you think about that, because, you know, we do have policies in some of these, in some states that are dealing with high outbreaks of COVID, where, you know, it's like, well, you know, if you have a underlying condition, you know, they have all these lists, and they're just like, well, you know, we're just going to make you comfortable. And that's it. You know, the other day I saw you tweets about how so many Native communities have been ravaged by COVID-19. And, you know, I was wondering if you just, uh, if you're okay with it, just sharing uh, a little bit more about your thoughts on how Native people have been impacted by the pandemic and, you know, how all of this intersects with settler colonialism. And that, you know, clearly, the long-standing history of, you know, genocide, white supremacy, and the political racism that you just mentioned. Yeah, you know, it's, 
it's really hard to talk about COVID in the Native community specifically because it's hit us so hard. Um, you know, my cousin and his wife were um, infected with COVID-19 and they recovered. My aunt and uncle both had COVID-19 and they were intubated. My aunt, like me, has lupus and my uncle had a lot of health conditions as well. So when they got COVID, it was very scary because their chances of survival were really, really low given their health conditions. Um, and they were intubated right away. Like they weren't sick long before they had to be intubated. My aunt was in a coma and she was intubated for about 36 days. And my uncle was intubated for 61 days before he died. And my aunt recovered. And when they say recover, I don't think they don't mean like, you're just all well, you're good. Uh, My aunt had to relearn how to walk. And, you know, she has lupus. So, you know, a lot of the damage that was done because of COVID also impacted the way the lupus started attacking her body. And like, she's still recovering it. And it's, it's been about three months. And, you know, she like the progress that she's made is still very marginal compared to, you know, what healthy people that have recovered have made. And it's really hard to talk about that because, you know, in my opinion, none of this should be happening. Um, We shouldn't be being as hit as hard as we are. And especially when you consider that Native Americans are less than 2% of the entire U.S. population, like we're a very small population. And you start looking at the numbers and it's, it's terrifying. Um, the CDC found that natives were testing positive for COVID at rates three and a half times more than that of non-Hispanic white people and were hospitalized at rates five times that. And what, what makes it so horrendous is just that we're already at higher risk for the more severe COVID symptoms um, because of the health disparities that we face in our communities. You know, we have a lot of natives who have underlying conditions, whether it's diabetes, um, obesity, you know, but we also have a lot of chronic illness and disability within Indian country. A lot of our communities that have been hit by environmental disasters due to uranium drilling, um, oil spills, you know, they already have um, high rates of cancer in those communities and other illnesses that in birth defects. And that all plays a part in, you know, how the survivability of COVID-19. So we're already at risk for the more severe symptoms. And we've seen that risk really just become a reality because it's devastating our communities right now. Um, In July, the Cherokee Nation lost 13 fluent language speakers over the course of one month. Um, The Mississippi Choctaw have roughly about 11,000 tribal citizens and 10% of the entire population has tested positive and there have been 75 deaths. Um, The Navajo Nation has been hit really hard. They've had over 10,333 cases. Um, 555 deaths have been reported. And, you know, when you, that's, that's just a few tribes. There are over 573 federally recognized tribes in the U.S. And there are hundreds more that are just state recognized. And every single nation is being impacted by COVID. And, you know, and it directly correlates to the racial inequity and the ongoing genocidal policies that we've been combating since first contact. Like it's, there's, there's no separating the two right now. Um, And 
And a lot of that has to do because indigenous people have a right to health care under the treaties that we've signed with the U.S. Um, but the U.S. has failed to live up to those treaty obligations. Our health care has been defined by shortages in access, the quality of care, and even funding. Like not once in the history of the Indian health services have they been fully funded. And every year they just face huge funding cuts over and over again. And what makes that hard for Indian country is that many IHS clinics and hospitals, especially in urban areas, you know, with COVID um, and with the lack of funding, you know, they've had to cut hours, services, and we've had some that had to shut down altogether. Um, and 78% of Native people live off reservation in more urban areas. But a lot of the urban area IHS clinics have been shut down. Here in Los Angeles, we don't have access to IHS services. We, there's a nonprofit here, the United Indian Involvement Group. Um, they run a little clinic out of their offices and they serve the entire Native population for Los Angeles County. And Los Angeles County has one of the highest population rates for Native people. So, you know, they're basically right now, they're just overwhelmed with having to care for so many Natives with what resources they do have. And they do get some IHS funding, but um, most of their is um, funding comes through grants and also donations. And that's kind of scary to think that, you know, that the level of care that we need isn't being met because of funding. Um, and it's just, oh, there's just so much that goes into it because, you know, even, even if you do have access to IHS in an urban area, you still have to figure out how are you getting to your appointment? Do you have money for transportation? Um, where is it? Do you, are you going to have to take off work? Is there somebody to watch your kids? Is there, if you're disabled, is there someone to help you there? Because, you know, sometimes accessibility to buildings in urban areas are um, lacking to, you know, and I think that's an understatement to say, but, you know, even for the tribes that do have IHS, um, for natives who live on the reservation, you know, it's, it's the same struggles because not every native community has access to an IHS clinic and some natives, you know, have to travel one to six hours in order to be seen at an IHS clinic. And again, it comes back to the lack of money for gas, um, food, lodging, um, lack of transportation, someone to drive. And all of that makes it nearly impossible for natives to access an Indian health service clinic. And, you know, it's just, it's just that, you know, when you look at the impact of it all too, you know, aside from, you know, the funding for IHS, you know, we just, many of our communities just don't have access to the resources we need. And the U.S. government has intentionally delayed resources. And that includes um, funds through the CARES Act. Many tribes have had to sue in order to get the funds released to them. Um, tribal health programs that requested PPE for their health workers were instead sent body bags and supplies that were unusable because they were molded over or expired. Um, many of our more rural communities also lack access to running water. And with COVID-19, you know, that puts us at a huge disadvantage when telling you, you need to make sure you wash your hands and, you know, make sure you wash down services. If you don't have access to running water, you know, that kind of poses a problem to that. And all of that is intentional because the goal of the U.S. government has always been to eliminate the Indian problem, and it hasn't changed. 
and COVID-19, it doesn't care about race or class and it doesn't choose who to target, but our government does. This brings it up a perfect uh, segue to something you wrote on your website, which I'm going to quote. Uh, you wrote, survival is our superpower. But I've learned that it's not enough to, to just keep breathing. You have to live with a purpose to be beyond surviving a day in front of you. You must always consider the extraordinary measures that you're willing to take to be well, to, to be happy, to not just survive, but thrive. And this is, I think, especially residents right now, but it's been resident, I think, for you know, for a long time. Uh, so how are you, how do you reconcile with the dynamic between surviving and thriving under such a bleak and violent environment? Like, how do you take care of yourself and your the people around you and find joy every day? No, that's a good question, and it's one that I look at that quote. And it kind of haunts me <laughs> because, you know, when I, when I said this, it was at a time when my life was going pretty good. Like I kind of felt like I had broken out of like the cycle of poverty um, where everything seemed to be on the right trajectory and I wasn't having to worry about just surviving. Um, you know, my lupus was in remission at the time. You know, my work was going good. I had steady paychecks coming in. Um, you know, I was doing what I love to do. Everything seemed good. Like everything seemed like, oh, this is what it was all leading up to. Like I did it. Like I arrived <laughs> at that place where I could start worrying about how do I thrive now? Like how, because, you know, survival mode and thrival mode, it's very different because the things that serve you well when you're just trying to survive day to day, you know, they no longer serve you when you're trying to thrive. Like it's a totally different mindset. And so, you know, with everything that's been going on this year, especially, you know, it's really hard to reconcile with that because it's like, whoa, because you want to be kind of, it's really easy to get overwhelmed and to, you know, just see that violence and to just see the bleakness and the hopelessness but at the same time, you know, as bad as things have been, you know, there have been these moments where it's like, oh, you know, this is what life should be. <laughs> you know, we're not stressing ourselves out having to work or worry about, you know, the things that we were worrying about before um, that now just seems so um, petty and unimportant because now we're literally having to fight for, you know, our lives. Like, <laughs> like it's, it's a whole different world we're living in, but there are still these moments where you're like, Oh, you know, we don't have to exist this way. Like it's possible to do better and to be better. Um, and we've seen that because, you know, as somebody who's disabled, you know, for a long time, you know, we've been asking for more accessibility in terms of being able to work from home or, you know, to, have be able to do teleconferences instead of meeting in person because, you know, we're immunocompromised and 
they've always said, oh, well, that's not impossible. That's impossible. You know, like even taking classes online, they've always made these excuses as to why we couldn't do it. Like, no, you have to come and be in person. It has to be in person. And then with COVID-19, it seemed like overnight that, whoa, all of a sudden it's possible for us to work at home, to take classes online, to not have to do everything in person. Like even our doctor's appointments, you know, we can do over Zoom or a telephone call and, it's like, see, that wasn't so hard. Like it's possible. Um, we've also seen that, you know, like they're like, they always tell us like, well, there's not money to do this. There's not funding in order for us to, you know, help other people with this problem or that. But at the beginning of, you know, the pandemic, when they first started talking about the CARES Act, then they're pulling funding out of their butt. It seemed <laughs> like, it's like, wait a second, you said there was no money for this, but here you are putting billions of dollars towards this. So, you know, it kind of shows that it's possible for us to take care of each other in different ways as well. Um, Not just through, you know, like our government making sure that we have accessibility or, you know, funding. But, you know, we've seen it on a community level where there's a lot of mutual aid efforts um, and people like really being mindful of the people in need in their communities and making sure that they have food or that they have water that they have um, cleaning supplies, even that they have masks. That's a huge one that's been going on. And I really love that because there's so, right at the beginning when um, people learned that there were hospitals that didn't have access to their PPE or they were running on sh- shortages on masks, you know, people stepped up in their communities and were making masks for people. We're making, um, you know, making sure that they could try and figure out a way to get these people what they needed, um, even if it wasn't necessarily like the medical grade equipment they were used to, but just something in order to help them take care of people and keep themselves safe. So, you know, we've seen a lot of positive things come out of this as well. And so it's really, it's really hard for me to reconcile with that because, you know, it's easy to get overwhelmed, especially when you're struggling Um, But at the same time, you know, even when you are struggling, you still have to be mindful that you aren't just existing in that moment. Like you still have to think about, you know, what extraordinary measures that you need to take in order to be well, you know, to be happy and to not just survive, but thrive like that still stands even when you're struggling. And it's it's really hard to (laughs) reconcile with that. Because, you know, you have to take the good in with the bad. And I think, especially for someone like me, I I am bipolar and, you know, I struggle a lot with depression. And this year has been really hard for me, not just with the health issues, but, you know, at the beginning of this year, you know, I've, I've lost so many people. Um, I mean, just recently I had a cousin who passed away in a car accident. So it, for me, it feels like it's loss after loss after loss. And all I'm seeing is the devastation and all I'm feeling is that devastation. But at the same time, you know, I'm still finding these moments that to me are beautiful. So, you know, I want to pivot if that's all right with you, because you know, you are a journalist, a speaker, a podcaster, a technologist, advocate, community builder, and you are one of many Native activists who have fought against the use of 
native imagery of words as Bastard said. What's your take on how things seem to be slowly changing? I mean, for you, what is the ultimate goal in terms of, you know, eradicating all sorts of harmful images of native people? I think it's about time. And I'm really glad that change is starting to happen, especially for a lot of our elder activists who have been working on various issues, whether it was changing the name of the Washington football team, um, you know, the Cleveland Indians, the Chiefs, you know, we have a lot of um, elders who have been working on this issue for close to 50, 60 years. And a lot of them felt that this is something that they may never see in their lifetime. And, you know, they were just hoping that the groundwork that they were laying would help benefit future generations that were picking up the torch. And so, you know, when the football at Washington team announced that they were changing the name finally, it was a shock. Um, I think a lot of us knew it would happen eventually, but, you know, again, like not in our lifetime. So it was a shock and it was a good shock because it was just like, whoa, what? (laughs) And, you know, it made me happy for a lot of the elder activists who have been working on this issue because, you know, they got to see the benefit. Um, Because so much of the work that you do, you know, we constantly have to remind ourselves that it's not for us, it's for the future generations, because we know the likelihood that, you know, it's something that, yes, we're going to make some progress with the work that we do. We're going to start laying some of that education down. But, you know, it's something that is just going to be ongoing, because these problems didn't happen overnight. So, you know, the solution and the change, it's not going to happen overnight, any, you know, either. So it takes a lot of patience. And this is one of the cases where I was just so happy. <laughs> I mean, I'm still like, when I think of that, of the fact that, you know, my nieces and nephews are going to get to grow up um, in a world where it was the Washington football team, you know, that's amazing to me. Um, because the ultimate goal you know, when we're trying to change the name of these racist um, teams and monikers and, you know, the racist mascots, it's not that we're trying to erase ourselves or to even um, create a monopoly on native imagery or use of it. You know, it's that the imagery that exists, the monikers that are using um, have led to a very toxic um, misunderstanding of who indigenous people are in reality Um, because there's just no education on native people. Um, You know, when you go to school, you're fed a very whitewashed, very short um, version of native history. And usually only during November, which is native American history month. And so there's not a lot of comprehensive understanding of who Native people were in the past, much less who we are now in more contemporary times. And a huge part of that is because we have literally been made invisible by the hyper-invisibility of those mascots and team names. Because when people think Native American, that's where they go. Their mind goes to these and mascots, they go to these tropes that are so prevalent in pop culture. Um, and that's who they think Native people are. And that's one of the reasons why so many people have just this 
really defeated idea that Native people are just poverty stricken, that we're pitiful, that we have no value to society. Like they, people actually believe this. And then there's also a lot of people who don't believe we exist now. Like they think that we were extinct. Um, so it's, it's so vital that we remove this imagery that kind of contributes to that erasure of native people and kind of start letting people see us as more contemporary and real full, actually fallible um, human beings that we are and seeing us in other roles um, because we are just like everybody else. Um, <laughs> you know, we're human beings, like we're not perfect, but at the same time, you know, all these issues that we face in our community, whether it's poverty, alcoholism, drug abuse, these problems exist in other communities as well. But because of the prevalence of the tropes and the mascots and stereotypes, everything, you know, it's, they've really made those issues synonymous with our identity as native people. And that's where the problem is. And so eliminating that kind of takes out one obstacle. It, and it's honestly like the lowest hanging fruit. It's the easiest thing that people can do to help native people to, you know, change the names of their football teams or sports teams that are using native mascots or, um, native themed monikers like the chiefs or the Indians, like it's the easiest thing that you can do to change that in order to help native people. And because it creates, um, a toxic environment for native people, <laughs> no matter where they are. And it, t it does, it impacts like the self-esteem of our youth. And it also impacts like the political realities that we face as indigenous people, because, you know, a lot of people will tell us it's just a mascot. It's just a cartoon that it's not real, but the impact of those things are very real because the people in Washington, DC that are creating policy or, you know, even on state and local levels that are creating policy that impacts native people. Um, if they don't know who we are and they can't see us being beyond those tropes, then that policy is always going to re reflect those misconceptions and prejudices. And that's not good for any of us. And so, you know, it, that's one of the reasons that we really work to eliminate the use of harmful native imagery and, you know, get rid of these tropes because we no longer want to live with the impact that it has on our communities, the very real and harmful impact that it has. We want to be seen as who we are, human beings who are fallible, who are also resilient, strong, and we're absolutely brilliant. And that's one of the hardest things, I think, for me as a Native person to really um, reconcile with is that, you know, people are more willing to stand and fight for these mascots and these stereotypes than they are for actual living, breathing human beings that we are. So I think that's one of the reasons, you know, the ultimate goal, that's why we're looking to eradicate these native mascots and imagery just because we want to be seen as human beings. Jody, thank you so much for being on my podcast today. Well, thank you so much for having me. This podcast is a production of the Disability Visibility Project and all that community dedicated to creating, sharing, and amplifying 
Disability Pediatric Culture. All episodes, including texture strips, are available at Disability DivisibilityProject.com slash podcast. You can also find out more about Johnny on my website. The audio producer for this episode is me, Dallas Wolf. Introduction by the Deep Cloud. The music by Vulture Sports Team. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, or Google Podcasts. You should also support our podcast for dollar month or more by joining our Patreon page at patreon.com slash dvp. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash dvp. Thanks for listening. See you on the internet. Bye.